Again, this is Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to all of you, everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, And so we also, though many, are one body in Christ, and we are individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy, use it in proportion to our faith. If it's service, use it in our serving. The one who teaches, use the gift in your teaching. The one who exhorts, use it in your exhortation. The one who contributes, use it in your generosity. The one who leads, do it with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you that when you raised up from the dead, and when you ascended into heaven to sit on your throne, you said that you were pouring out upon your church gifts. Gifts of grace. These kind of gifts that we just read about. You have equipped us. Uh, to serve you and to serve each other with powerful, special, unique uh, gifts, unique ways that we have a specific personal piece of the action as you renew everything in Jesus. Tonight, would you connect the dots for us? Would you please let even this be a time where your word renews our minds that we might lay our lives down for you as living sacrifices, Uh, never uh, to earn anything from you but in response uh, to you, the God who has laid down his life for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So this time, 15 years ago, I was a freshman at the University of Georgia uh, where I went to school. And it's now 2015, which means for the past uh, 15 years, my whole world, my life, everything has happened on a college campus, Uh, either undergrad or grad school when I was at Georgia or as an intern, or a seminary student, or now uh, your campus minister. And so, uh, I love that. I love that God's given uh, that, made that a piece of my story, uh, that this is kind of where my life has happened is on the campus. It's it's helped me kind of step back as well, and notice some big trends or patterns that I've seen all along the way when I was a teenager uh, as a freshman, or when I was uh, mid-20s in grad school, or in my mid-30s now. And I've seen these patterns hold true in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Colorado, New Mexico. And so it's not a culture thing. But here's one of the key things that I've noticed. And it's not novel or super surprising. Here's what I've noticed. Christians in college, uh, there tends to be two groups or two ways that Christians live their lives in college. Number one, uh, there is kind of one group of Christians that they kind of coast their way through college. Uh, They're marginally involved. They go to church. They might come to RUF or a ministry like that. Um, But they don't seem to leave much of an impact or a legacy when they move on. 
And so these are the people where they're kind of hard to remember a year or two after they graduate. There's not much chatter or talk about them after they move on. Uh, they were here, but they weren't fully present or fully engaged with, with God or with other people while they were here. Christians, just not fully engaged. And then the other group of people um, I've noticed are Christians who were all in, both feet, uh, fully engaged, fully present with their friends, with God, uh, went to church probably as much as the other group, but they're the people that you remember three or four years after they graduate. They're the people that you still talk about long after they graduate, and it's not because of personality or because of popularity, uh, but it's because uh, of the way that they live their lives while they're at school. Now, I've kind of taken the liberty to name um, that kind of unengaged uh, group, uh, of which I was a part all throughout college, uh, as Caterpillar Christians, and the other group kind of engaged that people remember, they talk about, they made a difference. We call those butterfly Christians. Now, here's what I mean by the Caterpillar Christians and the butterfly Christians. Something is deeply similar about both groups. Caterpillars and butterflies are the same creature, right? It's just that one has passed through this process that uh, we call metamorphosis, and it's kind of blossomed into a butterfly. It gets wings. It can fly. Uh, it has new possibilities, new potential. Uh, and the other group kind of hasn't yet gone through that process or that transformation. And so, uh, same creature, both Christians, both alive and know God, not the, not the folks who think that going to church uh, somehow resurrects your soul or calling yourself a Christian makes you a Christian. I'm talking about real Christians. They really know God. So that's what they have in common. But what's different is for the caterpillar Christians, it's like they're earthbound. They're slow moving. Like a caterpillar, caterpillars consume, right? It takes them a long time, but they scoot along, then they eat one leaf, then they go eat another leaf. They're kind of on the take, and they don't leave much behind except for what comes out the tail end of the caterpillar. Now, the other, the other group... Uh, the butterflies are, are, the, are the caterpillars. They were once caterpillars, but they have kind of through a process of metamorphosis or transformation have taken on new potential, new power, uh, new possibilities. And they, just like the caterpillars, also consume. Butterflies eat. They take nectar out of plants. But they leave something behind. They leave behind pollination, right? They pollinate flowers and fruit trees and everything else, which causes fruit to grow, seeds to grow, that fall on the ground and new trees grow up. So caterpillars tend to take life. They're there, but they tend to consume and take life. Butterflies, in a sense, also consume. They need nourishment, but they leave behind a trail of life. One is earthbound and kind of disengaged a little bit. The other is uh, the sky's the limit. The boundaries uh, seem limitless, and it's a whole new uh, potential. And so to kind of Bring that back down uh, into the metaphor. The, but the caterpillar Christians uh, tend to be the less engaged ones, the ones that kind of more coast through. Never have a clear sense of who I am in Jesus and why it matters. Never are fully awake to what is God doing in and around you 24-7. The butterfly Christians seem to be more awake to that. And because they see God working in them and changing their friends or lining up all these weird opportunities uh, to, uh, to grow in relationship with people or to talk about the gospel, they get jazzed up, they're excited about it, they're engaged, and they pour out their lives. 
Now, uh, let me tell you a story about two houses when I was in RUF back at University of Georgia. Uh, Anna knows these people, so I'm going to change the names to protect the innocent on uh, one of these houses. But there was the yellow house, and there was the other house, we'll call it. Uh, now, RUF at Georgia was like 300 people. It was huge. And these two houses, uh, all of kind of the social life and the relationships around RUF just orbited around these two houses and the 10 or so guys that lived in each of them. Now, the guys in the yellow house, I would call them butterfly Christians. Uh, they threw the best parties ever. Uh, they would throw, but, but here's the reason why they would throw these parties. Uh, they were the kind of guys, I, w- I was in the room with some of these conversations, but they sit around and say things like, a lot of them worked at the, uh, the dining hall, and they would say things like, you know, I've got all these friends I'm getting to know at the dining hall, but they don't know any of my friends at RUF. Like, they don't have any friends who are Christians. We've got to find a way for them to get to know y'all. Um, we would love for them to be a part of this community, this group. And so what are we going to do? And they're like, we got to throw an epic party. And so they put on a party that was one of those parties that wasn't lame just because it didn't have all the baggage of like hangovers and hookups later. But it was actually a really good party. And they became known for this kind of stuff. And they invited everybody to these parties. Nobody was left out. It wasn't a clicky thing. Uh, but everybody came um, kind of the dining hall work crew was there right alongside kind of the people who'd grown up in the church their whole lives. Uh, and they were all kind of interacting. These guys loved each other so much that they would have weekly uh, roommate dinners where they would cook for each other. And the rule was no matter what your week is like, no matter what test you have coming up, everybody gives two hours on a Monday night. Uh, we're going to cook, we're going to eat together, and we're just going to enjoy each other. Sometimes it was a serious conversation. Most of the time it was just fun. But that was the yellow house. These are guys that, as, I, as Anna and I go back to Athens, uh, still to this day, these are guys that everybody talks about. The yellow house guys. Uh, one of them called me the other day. I was supposed to call him back Saturday, but he's, he's a deacon in the church now. Uh, he's the age of some of you. Um, but, but these guys, they, they had a different vantage point. Because they had wings, because they had been transformed by the renewal of their mind. We'll talk about that in a minute. They had this lofty vantage point to actually believe Jesus is at work in this campus, in this place. And they actually dared to believe God's promises that you better bet your life, I'll use you as I make everything new. They got that. Uh, not all of them were even Christians when they showed up to college. Several of them were converted. But, but they had, their, their, their eyes were open to this kind of stuff. Now, the other house. Uh, the, the other house... Um, some of the coolest guys in RUF. They had the prettiest girlfriends. They were the intramural champs all the time. And uh, these guys also threw a lot of parties, but they were the kind of parties where the day after, Rob, our campus minister, would call them up and say, here's your call list. These are the people you're going to call, confess your sin, and ask their forgiveness because you all got drunk last night. And so every party was like this mass confession and mass uh, seeking of forgiveness because their parties, everybody was drunk. Uh, not everybody was invited. It was pretty clicky. And these guys were kind of passing ships in the night with each other because they were all so busy uh, that I don't know if there was ever really any lasting impact for them living together. Some of them lived there for four or five years uh, together. Uh, And I don't know what kind of relationships they have to this day. But uh, they were, in a sense, caterpillar Christians. God has been so kind to many of these guys uh, as I have kept in touch with some of them after. And they're different people now. 
Um, they've grown. He has brought them through this process. But here's the question. What explained the difference in the yellow house and the other house? It wasn't popularity because both houses uh, had a mixture of guys who were perfectly fine being who they were, but they weren't the coolest guys. Both houses, it wasn't uh, an issue of personality, full of great personalities in both houses, and it wasn't an issue of availability. You might think, well, the yellow house guys, they kind of were like, throw school to the wind, we're going to do ministry all the time. No, they were all actually great students. Um, they were plugged in on campus. They all had jobs on campus, both houses. It wasn't an issue of availability. What explained the difference in why these guys lived this way and why these guys lived this way, and I would say why these guys left behind a trail of life and these guys left behind nothing, is because these guys had been transformed. Paul, the word he uses here in verse 2, be transformed, in Greek, get this, it's metamorphosis. It's not rocket science. Paul is saying that the way that we are transformed is through the is through the renewal of our minds, or the way that we, are, we go through metamorphosis, that this process of transformation happens, is through our minds. That's how this process happens. Um, now, uh, why did, the, uh, why did the, other, the other house guys perhaps not uh, enter into that process? Well, it could be that they resisted the process or ignored it uh, or neglected it, or it could be like I was, I think, most of the early years of my life. Because I told you, I, I consider myself a caterpillar Christian most of college until God really turned the lights on for me. Uh, and, I was, and he enabled me to really respond to him. Uh, I think the reason most of us are content or we don't know how to actually be engaged, we kind of coast by, is because uh, we think that the Christian life is on autopilot. Now, if you've been listening the past few weeks, if you're a Christian... Your sanctification, you becoming holy and like Jesus, is guaranteed. God promises it too many times for it not to happen. It's going to happen. When you go to heaven, when you see Jesus, you are going to look like him and be like him. But you can't mistake that for meaning that your, your growth is automatic. It is not automatic. This is why some of you... Uh, we see some people growing like weeds and some not growing at all. There is a response that God calls forth from us, a way that we participate in what he's doing. And this is what explains just varying degrees of maturity amongst Christians, is those who give themselves to this process of renewal of the mind and those who do not, or those who think that God's just going to, we can kind of sit back and coast and God um, is going to do all of that for us. That's not the way it works. And so really quickly, let's get practical with this. And then we'll, we'll, we'll run through those three quick ways that this changes the way we relate to God, ourselves, and other people. What does it mean, or how can you change? If you feel like you're the caterpillar, you feel like, have I left any impact at this place? Is there any blood on the field when I leave? Or have I kind of, I've been disengaged from God, disengaged from other people my whole time at college, and you're wondering, how can I change? Is it too late to do a U-turn? No, it's not too late. Maybe you're a butterfly. Maybe God has already brought you through this process. You see Jesus at work. You believe he cares for your friends. You want to see people come alive. Well, then consider these flying instructions. Um, how do we change whether you're a caterpillar 
or a butterfly. Through the renewal of our mind, how do we do that? It's simple. Paul's talking about change that happens as a result of us focusing on, studying, meditating, becoming experts in the mercies of God. Very first words out of his mouth in this chapter is, I appeal to you, therefore, he's saying, in light of all the gospel that I've told you in the previous 11 chapters, and then he says, by the mercies of God, so he's saying, because of God's mercy to us, I appeal to you, um, uh, offer yourselves as living sacrifices and be uh, transformed. So what does it mean? How does God renew our minds? Well, it's as we focus more and more on Him, on who He is, on what He's like, on where He is, on what He's doing in you and around you. As you wake up to that, the natural response uh, is that you begin to see Offering yourself as a living sacrifice as an exciting, deeply satisfying way to live your life. Apart from that, if the mercies of God are out of your view, a hearing that Jesus calls you to offer your very life, all of yourself, to give yourself away as a sacrifice, you're going to hear that as the most threatening and awful uh, thing you've read in the Bible. Because you're going to think it means the end of you. Some of you here are the call to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice as the beginning of a brand new life. Some of you will hear that as the end of your life. Uh, and, you're, and we're in need of renewal if we hear it as the end of our lives. N.T. Wright is a scholar. He writes on this passage and he says this. Being trained to think Christianly is the necessary antidote to what will otherwise happen to us as Paul calls it, being squeezed into shape or being squeezed into the pattern of the world. Or he says in this version, being uh, conformed to this world. So Paul says, all of us are changing. All of us, in a sense, are going through a process of metamorphosis all the time. The question is, what's on the other side of that little cocoon? Will you look like the world Will you look like the Lord? All of you are changing. All of us are offering our bodies, our, our very lives as a living sacrifice to something. You pour out your life. You pour out your time. And guess what? You don't get your time back. If you spend your time, um, like I sometimes do, binging on Netflix, I don't get that time back. So I'm tired the next day, and I don't have the Bible study prepared or something. And it hurts y'all, and it hurts me. Um, but we don't get our time back. We don't get our lives back in a sense. So all of us are pouring out our very lifeblood and our time to something as a sacrifice. We're all, we're all doing this. This is, this is kind of inescapable uh, for human beings. And so the question is, what are we pouring our lives out to? And will you ever get your life back if we pour it out? Um, you only get your life back if, you, if you're pouring out your life as a sacrifice to the God of resurrection. Uh, because if, as we pour out our lives to any other God, nothing comes back. No life comes back. Pour your life out to the God of grades and schools, you'll leave here with no real relationships. You'll look back to four lonely years that nothing ever came of it. And you'll get in a job and you will maybe get a little bit more money, but then you'll get to that phase of life. And just like all the people in 2008 when the stock market crashed, you'll be like, what have I lived for? Nothing. You don't get your life back 
unless you lay it down to the God of resurrection. Because he is the only one who can not just give you your life back, but give it back to you better than you laid it down. New life. Full life. Resurrection life. That's the point. Who are you laying your life down for? Will anybody talk about you, remember you, be different because you were at New Mexico State these years? This is real life stuff, right? It's not abstract. The answer is either yes or the answer is no. That's what it looks like to, for us to offer our lives uh, as a living sacrifice. And as I alluded to earlier really quickly, if you're asleep to the things of God, if our minds are kind of closed off to the gospel, to the mercies of God, if they seem vague to you, or boring to you, or irrelevant to you, uh, or dull, again, you are changing. Um, it's not just those who are kind of giving themselves uh, to the scriptures, to the things of God, who are kind of coming alive and engaging in the world. You are also changing. Paul calls it conformity to the world. Think about it this way. Uh, two objects in a river. One's a rock, one's a fish. Which one takes on the shape of the river? The rock does. It seems sturdier. It seems so strong. But it's stationary. It can't move. And so whatever way the river currents cut into it, it takes on the shape of whatever the river does to it. The fish, on the other hand, is alive. It moves. And so it can swim against the current. It can actually get to where it wants to go. And it doesn't erode. It keeps its shape. And God is saying... In a sense, he's saying, Christian, you're alive. Swim. But to the extent that you coast, to the extent that we remain stationary, unmoved by the grace and the mercy of God, the world will erode you. It will shape you. You will look no different from anybody else. That's what's on the line. That's the difference in the other house, in the yellow house. This could make the difference in what happens with your time in college. Now, I told you uh, that we would talk about kind of the three really practical takeaways um, from how this actually, this offering our bodies, all of ourselves, leaving all of ourselves on the field, so to speak. Offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Living, actually believing what Jesus says when you don't belong to yourself, you were bought with a price. Believing what he says in Luke 17, that if a man seeks to cling to his life and preserve it with white knuckles, he loses it. It's only when a man lays down his life for Jesus' sake in the kingdom that you actually live. That's dead serious. He's not being figurative. You try to preserve your life, you'll lose it. It is only when we lay down our lives as living sacrifices that we actually taste life. This changes us three ways. The way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to God, which we've already, already talked about, and the way that we relate to others. How does it change the way you relate to yourself? Well, when you begin to um, get caught up in God's story and his action in the world, it kind of, it takes hold of you and you want to be a part of that too. You get excited about it. You want to dive in. And so uh, what, what happens to us uh, after that as we give ourselves uh, more to it is that we realize it's not just all on us to kind of get involved, get in the game, roll up our sleeves and get to work. God is actually equipped you. I'm talking to individuals now as I see your faces. God has given you specific, customized, 
gifts that are to build up his church, build up his body, that you're using as tools to participate as he makes everything new. You have a specific piece of the action. It has your name on it. The times we pick it up and use it, there's joy. The times that we don't, it still is sitting there with your name on it. This changes the way we relate to each other because when you realize, or when we relate to ourselves, because when you realize that Jesus has loved you so much, he didn't just salvage your life, he didn't just resurrect you, he said, come join me as I make everything new, as I reconcile the whole world to God. Uh, and you get a piece of the action. And it's through the gifts that we'll talk about in a second when we close, through the gifts that Paul lists. But this humbles you. Because there's a sense of, why me? Why, did he, why does he, he love me? Why is he so patient that he lets the likes of me join him in his mission? Every day when I get up, he rolls up his sleeves and says, are you ready to come and to work? That humbles us. What, else, what also humbles us is this, that we, you, are members of one another. What this means, if you're a Christian, you're a body part. This is humbling. Because you're only one body part. You're a kidney. You're a toe. You're an eye. You're a leg. Whatever Coolio read earlier, you're something in the body. Which means this. This is a humbling reality uh, to accept about ourselves. You don't have everything you need to grow as a Christian in yourself. So if you are disengaged from the church, from the body of Christ, you cannot grow. End of story. You will not grow the same way you won't live if you don't have a heart or a lung or a kidney. You will be diminished. But not just that. The body of Christ will be diminished. Because how does, how does the body fare when one of the body parts isn't there, isn't working, isn't participating? And so this is kind of a humbling thought. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Because you're just one part of the body. No, none of you are a renaissance man or renaissance woman. That's a fancy word for a, a, you can do everything on your own. You're not a rock star. You're a symphony player. You're one piece of a much bigger thing going on. You're not the one man or one girl band. This combats our pride. This pushes against our independence. This pushes against our desire to be isolated and to kind of do Christianity just me and Jesus. That sounds spiritual. It couldn't be anything less biblical or less spiritual than saying Christianity is just about me and Jesus. No, it's not. It's about you and his body, which is the church, and us playing a role in that. The second thing, though, is it's not just Paul saying don't think more highly of yourself. Don't get cocky because you're good at encouraging or good at teaching or good at music or good at administration. Also, don't think less of yourself than you ought. There's one form of narcissism where we think, I'm a rock star, I can do it all. There's another form of failed narcissism where you want to be the rock star, but you know you're not, and so you beat yourself up and hate yourself all the time. Or we're failed perfectionists. It's like, I can't do it all, I suck, how's God ever going to use me? I have nothing to contribute. Paul's also telling you, sobriety is what you need. You're thinking like a drunk man or a drunk woman. Sober up. You have been given a specific gift, a piece of the action to join the mission. So that both brings us down from our pride and up from our discouragement. 
Because in the church, there is no unemployed person. If your parents have ever been unemployed, you've seen how depressed they get, how quickly. Uh, Without a job, without a mission, people go south quickly. If you're a Christian, you have a job, you have a mission. Here's how. Paul says it gets really specific. The third way that this affects us, not just how we relate to God through sacrifice or how we relate to ourselves through sobriety, but it changes how we relate to each other through service. Each of you does have a unique piece of the mission. And so what is your gift? Paul lays them out here. There's several passages, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that Coolio read, where Paul kind of lists, bam, 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 bam. These are the specific gifts God has given his people to serve his people. The ones that Paul mentions here, verse uh, verse 6, prophecy, which is truth-telling. Verse 7, service or mercy, uh, teaching, exhortation or encouragement, contribution or giving and generosity, leadership, and and mercy. And so these are just a few of many that he mentions other places. But this is your piece of the action. Now, some of you already know this stuff. You know what you're good at. You know what you feel like, I came out of the womb to do this thing. I was made a musician. I love music. I'm good at music. Other people are lifted up by my music. Or you know that I'm an encourager. I've always loved to encourage people. Everybody seems so encouraged when I'm around them and say stuff. But some of you, if you're like me, I had no clue what any of the gifts that Jesus gave me were probably until three or four years into being a Christian. Here's how you find out. Because sometimes it's not so simple. Uh, Number one, the way God showed me is he brought other Christians around me to begin to help me connect the dots. Ben, you're really good at this. Like, when you made that comment, I thought about this, I never thought about that before. Or, when you explained this thing this way, it made sense for the first time. Also, the converse is true. By doing a lot of stuff that I sucked at enough times, I began to realize, I'm just not good at this. Why bang my head against the wall? But it was other Christians giving me feedback. What's the application? When you're encouraged by somebody, when you're blessed by another person serving in a silent and kind of secret way, when you've been blessed by somebody else's generosity or their giving or their hospitality, have you told them? Sister, brother, every time you do this, I see it and it blesses me. It brings life to me. It's like the butterfly that's pollinating and life is cascading out of that. You're good at that. The more that happens to you, the more clarity you get in how God has gifted you to bless his church. Um, The other way is you begin to discover your own passions. Some of you have figured this out. Some of you haven't. Uh, How do you figure out what Jesus made you good at? You try it all. You try the administration. You say, I'll be the person who sends out the Bible study emails every week. Or you try hospitality. You have people over to your house. You try music. If you're like me, you stop music very early on. (laughs) You take a shot at teaching. You take a shot at encouragement. And you let the chips fall where they were because you're going to find I'm awesome at some stuff and I suck at other stuff. And Jesus is okay with that. He didn't make you a rock star who does it all. He made you a trumpet player in a 300-piece orchestra or one violinist. And that's it. Jesus is okay with you being good at one or two things. Are you okay being good at one or two things? It's not about our ego. It's about the body of Christ being built up. Really quickly to help you further 
identify what you might be gifted at. Frederick Buechner says, the place that God calls you, the primary place you're going to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God and to other people, is this place. He says, it is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. So your piece of the pie, your piece of the action, your gift, is where your deep gladness intersects with the world's or the church's deep needs. Right? People, people in need need service. People without resources need generous people to give. People who are lonely need hospitable people whose house is an open house all the time. People who don't know where to go in the Christian life need leaders. People who don't know what the Christian life is supposed to look like need teachers. People who, as all of us, who get depressed and discouraged daily need encouragers. You see how Jesus has provided for you so carefully, so kindly, so compassionately. If you want to know what God's grace to you looks like, do a little 360 with your eyes right now. God's grace is sitting all around you. This is why, if we're not involved in each other's lives, we are closing ourselves off from life itself. Because gifts you don't have are sitting all around you. And you don't have access to them if we're not in in each other's lives. Uh, And and the the reverse of that is true as well. Uh, The body suffers uh, when you back away. The body, we suffer when others back away. Let's identify gifts in each other. Let's cultivate the gifts that we suspect. Maybe God has given me this. Practice it. Use it to bless the church. Use it to serve. Get better at it as you get older and older. Um, And see it as your piece of the pie, your piece of the action that Jesus has set apart just for you to have a role in Him making all things.